Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 363 for February 12th, 2024. So real quick before I get to the news rundown, be on the lookout if you are a LastPass user. Uh, there has been a fake version of the LastPass app that somehow got through Apple's review process. It does happen. I, I say that like it's impossible. It's not, it is obviously not impossible. So the main thing to look at, the, the, the icon looks almost, almost the same as the LastPass icon. It's called the same thing. It's really uh, confusing. It's meant to be ambiguous. Look at the app publisher. The real app publisher for the LastPass app is a company called LogMeIn Inc. or Incorporated. That's the one you're looking for, the one that says LogMeIn. And just in general, you should always be looking carefully at the publisher and beware of lookalike apps. This happens a lot. A lot of companies are trying to do this. In fact, and this is really why I wish Apple would not do this. Companies can pay a lot of times to move up in the search results. And they will. And what they will do is they say, well, when people search for this, I want you to put my thing up there first. And so when people search on LastPass, you've probably seen this if you've ever been to any app store, including, unfortunately, Apple's. Uh, when you search on something, you get a whole bunch of other similar apps first. The top search result is not the thing you want. The top search results are the people who paid to have their apps put ahead of the thing that you really want so that you either you know, are forced to look at theirs and consider theirs as a possible alternative, or in this case, make the mistake of picking one that looks like the one you want, which is not the one you want. And this is the reason why Google search has gotten so bad as well, because all the stuff at the beginning, the first page of results is all crap. The stuff you don't want, it's stuff that people pay to put there. All right, so uh, the news right now for the week. We've got a lot of stories to cover. We're going to talk about the mother of all breaches containing 26 billion records. 23andMe is at risk of being delisted from the NASDAQ stock exchange, quite possibly due to all the pending class action lawsuits. There was a viral story about toothbrushes that were attacking the internet, which was, of course, not true. There was another clickbait story about how uh, Microsoft's BitLocker encryption was cracked in 43 seconds by a device that only cost 10 bucks or less. I'm going to explain why that is probably something you don't need to worry about. A report from Malwarebytes says that Mac security threats are on the rise and has a general kind of update on the state of malware from 2023. The FBI director is warning that Chinese hackers are aiming to wreak havoc on U.S. critical infrastructure. And uh, in a couple of related stories... The FBI, along with uh, the U.S. government, worked to remove Chinese malware from some routers using a somewhat controversial means to do so, but we'll, we'll talk a little about that. And then CISA, the U.S. government security agency, and the FBI have released uh, another great document on uh, how manufacturers should be working to eliminate some of the vulnerabilities in what they call these SOHO routers, small office, home office, which often are the ones that you and I would buy. The FCC has outlawed voice cloning and robocalls after the fake New Hampshire Joe Biden robocalls. The EFF has an interesting article about avoiding voice clone scams by creating a family password, something I've actually talked about before. Firefox has a new subscription service to help you delete your data from data brokers. And Privacy for Cars has put out an interesting proposal called Opt-Out Code. Uh, which I'll tell you about. And then finally, the, for the tip of the week, tax season is just around the corner here in the United States. So it's time to talk about how to avoid tax scams. So lots to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from Cyber News, and it's about the mother of all breaches. There are data leaks, and then there's this. A supermassive mother of all breaches, or MOAB for short, includes records from thousands of meticulously compiled and re-indexed leaks, breaches, and privately sold databases. Bob Diachenko, security researcher and owner at securitydiscovery.com, together with the CyberNews team, has discovered billions upon billions of exposed records on an open instance, uh, which means a server. Even though at first the owner of the database was unknown, a company I'd never heard of either called Leak Lookup, a data breach search engine, said it was the holder of the leaked data set. The platform posted a message on X or Twitter saying that the problem behind the leaks was a quote-unquote firewall misconfiguration, which was fixed. Oh, great. According to the team, while the leaked data set contains mostly uh, information from past breaches, it almost certainly holds new data that was not published before. 
The Moab contains 26 billion records over 3,800 folders, with each folder corresponding to a separate data breach. While this doesn't mean that the difference between the two automatically translates to previously unpublished data, billions of new records point to a very high probability that the Moab contains never-seen-before information. A quick run through the data tree reveals an astoundingly large number of records compiled from previous breaches. The largest number of records, 1.4 billion, comes from Tencent QQ, a Chinese instant messaging app. However, there are supposedly hundreds of millions of records from Weibo, about half a, half a billion, MySpace, uh, 360 million, Twitter, 281 million, Deezer, 258 million, LinkedIn, 251 million, that goes on and on, Adult Friend Finder, Adobe, Canva, uh, VK, which I've never heard of, Dailymotion, Dropbox, Telegram, and many other companies and organizations. The leak also includes records of various government organizations in the US, Brazil, Germany, Philippines, Turkey, and other countries. So there's, there's really not a lot to say about this, but some of the interesting uh, articles I've read about this talk about this data broker society, this this whole industry of collecting and selling and trading in data. And there are it runs a spectrum. There are people that are doing it strictly for money and selling this this stuff, and people actually doing the data exfiltration, the bad guys. Uh, there's people like you know Troy Hunt who actually try to get this data so they can put it in their database so that you can search it to find out if you were in this date, you know, in this leak, if you want to find out, have I been pwned, for example. And then there's these kind of weird companies in between, like it sounds like this leak lookup company, who seems to be honestly kind of shady. They're trying to make themselves sound like researchers, like, hey, we collect all this stuff so you can come to us and get it from us in a one-stop shop. <laughs> but it, in this case, as it turns out, they've collected all this data and then turned around to sell this data supposedly to researchers. And this company that was doing all this got hacked. And and basically lost all the stuff that they've been collecting. So it's, you know, I, I almost hesitate to talk about data breaches anymore, even big ones like this. A lot of this stuff is recycled data from previous data breaches. It just kind of gets collected and refined and sorted and... And in some cases, like this one, potentially, you know, enriched, in other words, merged with other sets of data to make all the records uh, that much more valuable. And it's it, this whole economy just just has to somehow stop. I, I don't know how we do this, but until we do this, this, this sort of thing is just going to keep happening. All right, moving on. This next one is from Fast Company. Once considered the hottest startup in Silicon Valley, 23andMe's fall from grace has been swift and brutal. The genetic testing company, which was valued at $6 billion just a few years ago, is now facing both a possible delisting from NASDAQ and dozens of class action lawsuits. It's all part of the continuing fallout of the hacking of the company last year. The company has since admitted it failed to detect the data breach for more, for more than five months, giving the bad actors the chance to steal the ancestry data of, so, of some 6.9 million of its 14 million users. The hack targets users of Ashkenazi Jewish and Chinese heritage in particular. There are currently three dozen class action lawsuits tied to last year's hack. 23andMe isn't out of money yet, but the funds are running low. The stock, which at one point was as high as $16 per share, now trades around 76 cents per share. As a result, NASDAQ in November issued a notice of delisting to the company, giving it 180 days to get shares back above $1. And while 23andMe raised roughly $1.4 billion in venture funding before the hacking incident, the Wall Street Journal reports that the company has spent roughly 80% of that, and a high-dollar settlement to those class action lawsuits could substantially drain the remaining amounts. The journal says the company is burning cash at a rate so quickly it could be out by next year. So we talked about this breach. It was it was not good. I mean, data breaches never are. But when the, the data is potentially your genetic data, that's even worse. Now, I think they have said that they have no evidence that the genetic data itself was was uh, hacked or leaked. But, you know, we, we may still be getting to the bottom of that. And it's still obviously potentially something that could be leaked. So anyway, here, here's my advice. Uh, if you have used 23andMe, I would strongly consider asking them to delete your data. Why? Well... If they do go bankrupt, or if they sell out to somebody else because they're struggling, then there may be a fire sale for the data they have. I mean, that's one of the most valuable things they have. So if they need to get money, they may be turning around and selling your data to get that money. Or if they sell themselves to another company, that new company may do that as well. So if you've already used 23andMe, 
I would seriously consider uh, asking them to delete your data. Regardless, of course, even if you don't want to delete your data, you should go online. You should go to the 23andMe account, uh, find your online settings, and restrict the sharing of your data as much as possible, whatever you can find. And that may involve actually sending them a written letter. Some of these privacy policies make it really hard, easy to opt in and very hard to opt out. You might also want to request a copy of your data. But if it were me uh, and I'd use 23andMe, I would get a copy of my data and get out and tell them to delete anything they have on me. All right, next up, this is from 404 Media. Uh, and it was about a viral story that you, you probably saw it because this is so clickbaity. This probably hit the mainstream news about uh, a toothbrush botnet story. So let me read an excerpt from this article. Tuesday, and I think this was just last Tuesday, a Tom's Hardware article noted that 3 million smart toothbrushes were used in a DDoS attack, a distributed denial service attack, that caused, quote, millions of euros in damages in Switzerland, unquote. The story quickly went viral because things like this have happened before, because it feels absurd, and because we as a society deserve it for putting internet connectivity in everything and for not securing those devices. But this attack didn't actually happen. Tom's Hardware relied on an article that is about the general problem of insecure Internet of Things devices, originally written in German by a Swiss news outlet. It has since been picked up all over the English-speaking and German-speaking press, gone viral on Reddit, Hacker News, Twitter, etc. In a statement to 404 Media, Fortinet said, To clarify, the topic of toothbrushes being used in DDoS attacks was presented during an interview as an illustration of a given type of attack and is not based on research from Fortinet or Fortigard Labs. It appears that due to translations, the narrative on this topic has been stretched to the point where hypothetical and actual scenarios are blurred. So yeah, so... <laughs> My take. First of all, obviously, don't believe everything you read. The more sensational it looks like, the more you should question it. However, <laughs> it's important to note that this is absolutely something that could happen. Any IoT device with crappy security, which is unfortunately many of them, can be compromised and conscripted into a botnet. The Mirai botnet is famous for this, and it is still going. So while, again, this particular thing didn't happen, things like this have happened and continue to happen that are just like this. Also note that for uh, most IoT devices that you might have at home, your smart TVs, your smart toasters or whatever, they would probably most likely need to be compromised from inside your network. Generally speaking, if your router, uh, your Wi-Fi router is doing its job, it has a firewall uh, that prevents communication with these devices, you know, randomly or unsolicited communication from outside your home network. However, you know, it is possible these devices almost always talk to some cloud server somewhere. So yes, it's possible that, you know, that device's cloud server could be hacked. And then through that cloud server, the devices that talk to that cloud server could also be hacked. So takeaway, you know, obviously be careful choosing your IoT devices, spend money for the ones that hopefully have better security and with brand names that come with repu reputations that these companies would like to maintain. But you should also, wherever possible, segregate your IoT devices, put them on your guest network, kind of cordon them off. And then I've got a whole series of articles on how to protect your home network. And so I'll put a link in the show notes to that. But you can also just go to firewallstonestopdragons.com and search on Secure Your Network, and you will find that series of articles. So Tom's Hardware hasn't been doing some really good stuff lately, <laughs> and, and uh, that's a shame. And here's an example of uh, another article from Tom's Hardware recently that was just not well done. So the headline for this article is YouTuber breaks BitLocker encryption in less than 43 seconds with sub $10 Raspberry Pi Pico. So what, what does all that mean? So BitLocker is Microsoft's uh, built in hard drive encryption software. And a Raspberry Pi Pico uh, is a tiny version of the Raspberry Pi uh, single board computer. Uh, which is really a lot of fun. They're, if you ever want to get into some hobby stuff, uh, these things are great. But yeah, they cost $9.99 or something like that, so technically sub $10. And this guy figured out a way to break the BitLocker encryption. That actually is true, but uh, there's a lot more to it. So let me read very briefly from the article, and then I'll give you my take. BitLocker is one of the most easily accessible encryption solutions available today, being a built-in feature of Windows 10 Pro and Windows 11 Pro that's designed to secure your data from prying eyes. Now, I'll just stop and say right there, that makes it not easily accessible. Most people, regular people like you and me, do not pay for Windows Pro. This should be a feature in Windows Home, and it drives me nuts that this is not there uh, at the very base level of the Windows versions. 
Anyway, however, YouTuber Stack Smashing demonstrated a colossal security flaw with BitLocker that allowed him to bypass Windows BitLocker in less than a minute with a cheap sub $10 Raspberry Pi Pico, thus gaining access to the encryption keys that can unlock protected data. After creating the device, the exploit only took 43 seconds to steal the master key. And that first part, uh, after creating the device, is doing a lot of work, but I will come back to that. To do this, the YouTuber took advantage of a design flaw found in many systems that feature a dedicated Trusted Platform Module, or TPM. For some configurations, BitLocker relies on an external TPM to store critical information, such as platform configuration registers and volume master key, uh, while some CPUs have this built in. For external TPMs, the TPM key communications across an LPC, or low pin count bus, I'm sorry, these are all jargon, don't worry too much about this, I'll come back to it. Across uh, this LPC bus with the CPU to send it the encryption keys required for decrypting the data on the drive. Stack Smashing found that the communication lanes on this bus between the CPU and the external TPM are completely unencrypted on boot up, enabling an attacker to sniff critical data as it moves between the two units, thus stealing the encryption keys. Okay, all of that is technically true. However, it is not easy to do. The headline would make you believe that any schmo with 43 seconds and a $10 Raspberry Pi Pico could now, you know, break the hard drive encryption on your Windows on your Windows computer. That is definitely not true. First of all, this guy was really smart. He really knows what he's doing. He knows how to use a logic analyzer. He knows his way around a motherboard. He understands all the signaling on these buses. This is not something an average Joe could do. I watched the video that this guy posted. It's not that long and that you can get to it yourself by going to this article. The video is right there embedded there. But even if you had this guy's design and downloaded this guy's software, you would, you would be challenged. Any average person would be challenged to build this little guy's custom data probe. And you would have to be able to <laughs> open your computer, which could be a laptop, and which is a lot harder than most desktop computers to open up and kind of figure out. You'd, you'd have to be able to probe around on the motherboard to find these data lines. You would have to have an older motherboard that had a separate TPM chip. This guy did a very specific probe for a very specific motherboard that happened to have a certain set of pin pads on the motherboard that replicated the lines to these on this low bit count bus to the TPM, so he built a custom probe, which he had to solder together with this Raspberry Pi thing, creating a custom circuit board, and then write custom software to do it. He had to disassemble his laptop, peel off stickers and, and other things to expose these pads. It, it was not easy. And yet this headline would have you believe that it was. Hey, for, for 10 bucks and, and 43 seconds, you can get to somebody's encrypted hard drive. That is just not true. Also, again, this is older. Almost all modern computers do not have a separate discrete TPM chip where this would expose this communication between the TPM chip and the, the CPU. So anyway, even if you did have an older computer that had a discrete TPM chip that was running... Windows 10 Pro, because it wouldn't be Windows Home, because Windows Home doesn't have BitLocker, a bad guy would need some real sophistication to be able to build this thing, to be able to probe your motherboard, would have to have unfettered access to your device, take it apart to try to do this. So anyway, I'm just really kind of angry. <laughs> this headline makes it sound like it's so much worse than it actually is. All right, let, let, let's just move on. Malwarebytes has released its annual report on malware and uh, 9to5Mac gets some reporting on it, of course, being 9to5Mac, they kind of focused on the fact that Mac security threats are on the rise. But there's just kind of some random points in here that I want to pull out that I think are interesting. Uh, so first from the 9to5Mac article, it says Malwarebytes has released its latest report digging into the state of malware to start 2024. The findings include which countries see the most ransomware attacks, the evolution of malware over the last year, how Mac threats are growing, which Mac threats to watch out for, and more. Malwarebytes released its 29-page 2024 State of Malware Report today. In its opening, the company says, As we enter 2024, ransomware remains the most significant cyber threat facing businesses. Awash with money, the ransomware ecosystem surged in 2023 and continues to evolve its tactics. The number of known attacks increased 68%, average ransom demands climbed precipitously, and the largest ransom demand of the year was a staggering $80 million requested by the Lockbit gang following an attack on Royal Mail. And then it has several interesting charts. Uh, you can download this yourself. You have to give them an email address, unfortunately, and which signs you up for a newsletter. But this one graphic I thought was interesting so shows the known ransomware attacks by country in 2023, and 45% were the USA. 
The next closest single country listed was the UK at 7%, though there is a huge 27% chunk of other uh, in there too. But I was just shocked that basically half of all the ransomware attacks were in, were against the US companies. That's That's staggering. It also says that the amount of ransomware attacks increased significantly in 2023, shooting up 68%. The report goes on to cover developments in malvertising, zero-day ransomware, living off the land cyber attack techniques, and Android banking trojans before getting into the state of malware on Macs. The report highlights the new Mac Stealer malware we saw across the year and the quick evolution of the threat. This is one of the important ones to watch out for in 2024. So Steeler malware is, is something that we've seen a lot of in recent years. I haven't talked about it specifically much, but I just wanted to make sure that you're aware. This is the type of malware that if they trick you into installing it on your computer, monitors your computer for information. It tries to steal information. It can log your keystrokes, so it could try to get passwords or social security numbers, or in a lot of cases, they're looking for crypto wallet information. That's, that's a big thing that these Steeler apps try to try to get. But they can also, if they have access to your files, if they get enough permissions, they can try to steal cookies from your browser sessions, which would allow them actually to kind of bypass your login process. Um, because if you have this session cookie uh, for some amount of time, that is kind of the token that they use to say, oh, you're already logged in. You don't have to log in again. Many of these apps are blocked by Apple's built-in security apparatus, uh, which again, they don't tout very much, but it is there. And, and again, we discussed this with Patrick Ward a little, little bit last week, but we didn't really talk about Gatekeeper. This is another function that is built into Apple products that require apps that run on a Mac to be notarized, to be signed. And a lot of these apps, uh, when you're downloading them, actually have built-in instructions for how to bypass Gatekeeper. And the way you do that, you could, you, could, you could basically run any app on a Mac you want as long as you say, are you sure you want to do this? And you say yes. And so they actually give you instructions for when you download the app. You know how a lot of applications come with little starter guides, like how to, get, you know, how to install the app. Well, they actually tell you to do it in a way that bypasses Gatekeeper. So instead of installing the app, you download the file, you right-click on that file, and you say open. And then when it says, are you sure you really want to open this? You say yes. And these are the instructions like, hey, this is the user guide for using my app. Like, this is just totally normal. This is how you do it. So if you see those kind of instructions uh, on how to run an app, know that what it is doing, it is, a, it is getting you to work around Apple's built-in defenses. So therefore, you need to be very careful about any apps that you do that with and be immediately suspicious if that's how it's telling you to run the app. All right, next I've got a series of related articles. Uh, let's start with this first one. Uh, and I, I found this on NBC News, not a source I usually quote, but that's where I found it. So uh, let me read this first. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned about the growing threat of Chinese cyber attacks against U.S. electrical grids and other infrastructure in, a, in an appearance Wednesday morning before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. We actually have a whole committee for that, apparently. And Director Wray said, Chinese hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if or when China decides the time has come to strike. Ray also argued that there have been far too little public focus on Chinese hackers targeting critical infrastructure in the U.S., such as water treatment plants, electrical grids, oil and natural gas pipelines, and transportation systems, according to his remarks. And he also said, the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. As Ray testified, the Justice Department and the FBI announced that they had disabled a Chinese hacking operation that infected hundreds of small office and home routers with botnet malware that targeted critical infrastructure. And I will get to that in the next article. At Wednesday's hearing, the director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, testified that Americans should expect efforts by China to wage influence campaigns online relating to the 2024 election. However, she added that she was confident that voting systems and other electrical infrastructure are well defended. So now that let me take you to the next article from Ars Technica about that uh, malware removal campaign from the FBI. The U.S. Justice Department said Wednesday that the FBI surreptitiously sent commands to hundreds of infected small office and home office routers to remove malware China's state-sponsored hackers were using to wage attacks on critical infrastructure. The routers, mainly Cisco and Netgear devices that had reached their end of life, were infected with what's known as KV botnet malware, Justice Department officials said. Chinese hackers from a group tracked as Volt Typhoon used the malware to wrangle the routers into a network that they they could control. Traffic passing between the hackers and the compromised devices were encrypted using a VPN module KV botnet installed. 
From there, the campaign operators connected to the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure organizations to establish posts that could be used in future cyber attacks. The arrangement caused traffic to appear as originating from U.S. IP addresses with trustworthy reputations rather than suspicious regions in China. Before the takedown could be conducted legally, FBI agents had to receive authority, technically for what's called a seizure of infected routers or target devices from a federal judge. An initial affidavit seeking authority was filed in U.S. federal court in Houston in December. Subsequent requests have been filed since. And this is a quote from uh, one of those affidavits, quote, to effect these seizures, the FBI will issue a command to each target device to stop it from running the KV botnet VPN process. This command will also stop the target device from operating as a VPN node, thereby preventing the, ha the hackers from further accessing target devices through an any established VPN tunnel. This command will not affect the target device if the VPN process is not running, and will otherwise not affect the target device, including any legitimate VPN process installed by the owner of the target device. Wednesday's Justice Department statement said authorities had followed through on the takedown, which disinfected, quote-unquote, hundreds of infected routers and removed them from the botnet. To prevent the devices from being reinfected, the takedown operators issued additional commands that the affidavit said would, quote, interfere with the hackers' control over the instrumentalities of their crimes, the target devices, including by preventing the hackers from easily reinfecting the target devices, unquote. The affidavit said elsewhere that the prevention measures would be neutralized if the routers were restarted. These devices would then be once again vulnerable to infection. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Redactions in the affidavit made the precise means used to prevent reinfections unclear. Portions that weren't censored, however, indicate the techniques involved a loopback mechanism that prevented the devices from communicating with anyone trying to hack them. Now that the operation has been disclosed, the FBI plans to contact affected ISPs so they can notify affected subscribers. So there is a lot to unpack in here, but I would speculate that the reason that the devices would be again become vulnerable if they're restarted is a lot of times when you hack these IoT type devices, including home routers, the malware exists only in RAM. It doesn't get persisted. It doesn't make it to the hard drive or the built-in storage mechanism so that when the device is rebooted, it is reinfected. So that is why in a lot of cases to clear up an infection on a device, you just simply need to reboot it. Now it's still vulnerable unless you do something to protect that device, but oftentimes the malware running on that IoT device is only running in RAM and once you reboot it, it is gone. So it sounds to me like basically the FBI quote unquote infected these vulnerable devices with new quote unquote malware. In this case, it's not really malware. It's anti-malware, but it, it probably used the same vulnerabilities uh, that allowed the malware to get in to get the good software in uh, to pr protect it from being infected. So I think this whole process of how they had to get a federal judge to allow this, because basically they're the FBI in this case is basically hacking other people's routers without their permission. But in this case, they're doing it in order to remove malware and protect these devices, which by extension uh, will protect uh, U.S. infrastructure because these devices were being used to attack the infrastructure. Okay, so what, what is your takeaway from all this? First of all, update your router's firmware. This is something that a lot of older routers don't do automatically, so you need to figure out how to log into the device using the uh, router's admin password. And by the way, my article on securing your network has instructions on how to do this. So you need to log into your router as the admin. If you haven't done so already, you should change your admin password on that router because if it's some default password, the bad guys know what those default passwords are. So you should change it to something else. Then you should look for software updates on your device and update them. Uh, make sure you've got the latest software running. If your router is so old that there are no updates, if it's no longer supported, you really should be getting yourself a brand new router. The other thing you should do once you log in as an admin to your router is you should disable any uh, remote admin capabilities for that router. I don't know why some routers come with this turned on by default. You are almost never going to need to configure or update or change settings on your router from outside your home and leaving this access available on the outside of your router to, on the public side of your router, meaning that anybody anywhere on the internet could, if they knew what to do, could access your router and make these changes is something you just, you just don't want to do. 
So this is apparently a very serious thing and it's being exploited often. So if you have a small business or know somebody else who has a small business and they own and operate the, the router, uh, the networking equipment for their company, they need to be looking at this as well. Which leads me to the next article, uh, which can give us some hope. And this is uh, from CISA or Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. Boy, that just does not roll off the tongue. Okay, so from CISA, it says, Today, CISA and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the, or the FBI, published guidance on security design improvements for SOHO device manufacturers as part of the new Secure by Design or SBD alert series that focuses on how manufacturers should shift the burden of security away from customers by integrating security into the product design and development. This third publication of CISA's SBD alert series examines how manufacturers can eliminate the path threat actors, particularly the People's Republic of China or PRC-sponsored Volt Typhoon Group, are taking to compromise small office or home office routers. Specifically, CISA and FBI urge manufacturers to... First, eliminate exploitable defects during the product design and development phases in Soho Router's web management interfaces. That's WMIs, or that's kind of this external configuration interface I was just talking about. And second, to adjust default device configurations in a way that A, automates update capabilities, B, locates the web management interface on the LAN side ports, in other words, internally only, and C, requires a manual override to remove security settings. So that last one is a new one. And I think it's a very interesting idea. Basically what they're saying is to prevent remote hacking of devices, let's make certain settings at least, maybe security settings or configuration settings uh, or software update settings, these kind of things that are really important. Let's make sure that they're, first of all, only available if you're on the network. You can't do this from the, the broader internet, from outside your network. And second, they actually require you to go up to the device and physically interact with it in some way. Let's say there's some button on your router that you have to go press in order to make a change. And that once you hit that button, you've got, let's say, five minutes or 10 minutes to make a change, and then it reverts back to locked, basically. So uh, you go to your router, you're logging in as your admin, and you want to you know, update the software and it says, well, before you do this, uh, you need to go to your router and push that little button that's blinking right now. And so you go to your router, you see the flashing light, you push the button, and then you can go back and, and make the update happen. So why would you do that? Well, what that means is that you can no longer do these things remotely. So somebody in China can't hack your router if they can't make any changes to your router because they're not there to press that little button. So yes, is that inconvenient? A little bit, but you know, how often do you change these things on your router? And just Putting this little speed bump, this little extra bit of defense in there make, could make a huge difference. It's kind of like physical two-factor authentication. So I'm glad to see CISA is doing this sort of thing. This security by design effort is really great. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see they're pushing this. They've put out several guides on this. You can go to their site right now. If you go to CISA.gov, that's C-I-S-A dot G-O-V, uh, slash secure by design, all lowercase, all run together, you will see their whole series of articles on this. Uh, and this is this is great stuff. I'm really glad to see them doing this. And I absolutely agree with this mentality of we need to build the security in by design and we need to take the security responsibility as much as possible away from the customer and just build it into the system. It should be secure out of the box and it should be secure by default. Putting the onus on everyday people to make these things secure is not this is just not working. You know, these companies don't like to inconvenience us because they don't like to take support calls when customers have problems with these things. So what they do and what they have done in years past is they is they give you these security features that you can enable if you want, but they're not enabled by default. All right. So that's all good stuff. Uh, I'm glad to see it and I hope they keep putting out more secure by design documents. All right, moving on. You may have seen this in the news. Uh, it was about some uh, fake robocalls, apparently from Joe Biden, but they were deep fake voice copies of Joe Biden in the New Hampshire primary here in the United States a couple weeks back. And the FCC has now basically outlawed this practice. So uh, let me read this brief article from 9to5Mac. The United States Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, has agreed to outlaw robocalls that use voice cloning technology. The development comes after a wave of robocalls used an AI-generated voice claiming to be Joe Biden to mislead voters during a U.S. presidential election year. And this is uh, from the FCC. Today, the Federal Communications Commission announced the unanimous adoption of a declaratory ruling that recognizes calls made with AI-generated voices are artificial under the Telephone Communication Protection Act, or TCPA. 
The ruling, which takes effect immediately, makes voice cloning technology used in common robocall scams targeting consumers illegal. This would give state attorneys general across the country new tools to go after bad actors behind these nefarious robocalls. CBS News has reported on recent incidents, including as many as 25,000 robocalls that used voice cloning to mislead potential voters in New Hampshire. The FCC's action follows an incident ahead of the New Hampshire's presidential primary last month in which a phony robocall impersonating President Biden encouraged voters not to cast ballots in the contest. An estimated 5,000 to 25,000 of these calls were made. New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella on Tuesday said the AI generator recording made to sound like the president has been linked to two Texas companies with a criminal probe underway. While outlawing robocalls that use voice cloning won't automatically prevent future incidents, the FCC position does give states' attorneys general the power to target and fine offenders. So in case you missed it, this was covered on the news. There was a pretty accurate sounding robocall featuring Joe Biden's voice that basically told voters to stay home. And it's hard to say exactly why the reasoning for that might be. I mean, New Hampshire is an open primary or a semi-open primary, meaning that if you're not registered as a Democrat explicitly, if you're an independent or Republican, you can both vote in the Republican primary if you wish. So maybe, you know, maybe they were trying to keep people that were independents to stay home. It's hard to say, but nevertheless, it's not a good thing. And I'm glad to see that we are cracking down on that sort of thing. And this actually kind of leads into the next article because voice cloning is really becoming a thing. I mean, we talk about chat GPT a lot and even some of these image generating versions of AI, but there's a lot of tools out there right now, uh, many of them free that allow you to take a snippet of somebody's voice and clone it and then make that voice say anything you want to say. Actually, it's our really kind of cool use of this technology of all this kind of generative deep fake technology used for good purposes. And that was, if you've ever seen somebody give a speech like at the UN and you can see everybody in the audience has these little earpieces on because somebody is translating that from one language to another, probably to several languages. And so the way that usually works is what you hear on the nightly news is someone is speaking in a language you don't know. Let's just say a German, for example, and you're a U.S. citizen. So there is a translator who is talking over the person speaking in German on the fly in real time with a slight delay, translating everything that person is saying in German into English so that you can understand what they're saying. We haven't gotten good enough with this technology to do this in real time yet, but there are definitely translators that will take, you know, text from one language to another uh, very easily. But now we've actually gotten to the point where the, and they did this and I think it was a UN speech that somebody gave. They, and they had to publish this later I'll put the links in the show notes so you can see the the two side by side. They took somebody speaking in a different in a different language again, let's say German, translated that into English and then deep faked the video and the voice to redo that video to show that person speaking in their own voice tone in English and the lips moved accordingly. <laughs> So basically, it's kind of like an overdubbing in a movie, except they changed the way the lips moved as well. And they did it using the voice tone and quality of the original speaker. So it sounds as if the original speaker was the one speaking in the different language. It's, it's pretty amazing. So that, that is a good use of this. But there, as we've also seen, there are definitely bad uses for this, too. And especially in this 2024 election year, I'm afraid we're going to be seeing a lot more examples of this. So another Use for this technology is in scamming relatives of people out of money. And so EFF has a solution for that, one that I've actually talked about in the show before. And it sounds kind of crazy, but unfortunately, I think this is where we are today. So <laughs> let me read this one to you. Your grandfather receives a call late at night from a person pretending to be you. The caller says that you are in jail or have been kidnapped and that they need money urgently to get you out of trouble. Perhaps they then bring on a fake police officer or kidnapper to heighten the tension. The money, of course, should be wired right away to an unfamiliar account at an unfamiliar bank. It's a classic and common scam, and like many scams, it relies on a scary, urgent scenario to override the victim's common sense and make them more likely to send money. Now, scammers are reportedly experimenting with a way to further heighten that panic by playing a simulated recording of your voice. Fortunately, there's an easy and old-school trick you can use to preempt the scammers. 
creating a shared verbal password for your family. The ability to create audio deepfakes of people's voices using machine learning and just minutes of them speaking, actually it could be as few as seconds, has become relatively cheap and easy to acquire technology. There are myriad websites that will let you make voice clones. Some will let you use a variety of celebrity voices to say anything you want, while others will let you upload a new person's voice to create a voice clone of anyone you have a recording of. Scammers have figured out that they can use this to clone the voices of regular people. Suddenly, your relative isn't talking to someone who sounds like a complete stranger, they are hearing your own voice. This makes the scam much more concerning. Voice generation scams aren't widespread yet, but they do seem to be happening. There have been news stories and even congressional testimony from people who have been the targets of voice impersonation scams. It is likely that the scams will grow more prevalent as the technology gets cheaper and more ubiquitous. So here's their solution. The first step is to agree with your family on a password that you can all remember and use. The most important thing is that it should be easy to remember in a panic, hard to forget, and not public information. You could use the name of a well-known person or an object in your family, an inside joke, a family meme, or any word that you can all remember easily. Despite the term family password, it doesn't need to be limited to your family. It could be a chosen family, workplace, or an anarchist witch coven. Any group of people with which you associate can benefit from having a password. Then when someone calls you or someone trusts you or emails you or texts you with an urgent request for money or iTunes gift cards, you can simply ask them for the password. If they can't tell it to you, then it might be a fake. You could, of course, further verify with other questions like, what's my cat's name or when's the last time we saw each other? These sorts of questions work even if you haven't previously set up a password in your family or friend group. But keep in mind that people tend to forget basic things when they have experienced trauma or in a panic. It might be helpful, especially for people with less robust memories, to write down the password in case you forget it. After all, it's not likely that the scammer will break into your house to find the family password. The added benefit of this technique is that it gives you a minute to step back, breathe, and engage in some critical thinking. Many scams of this nature rely on panic and keeping you in your lower brain. By asking for the password, you can also take a minute to think. Is your kid really in Mexico right now? Can you call them back at their phone number to be sure it's them? So, go make a family password and a friend password to keep your family and friends from getting scammed by AI imposters or evil clones. So I think the real takeaway from all of this is that voice cloning is very easy to do these days. It's free in a lot of cases. All you really need in most cases is a short snippet of that person's voice. So, sad to say, we need some sort of authentication mechanism within our friend and family groups uh, so that when these situations come up, A, we can be immediately suspicious and B, have some mechanism that we can agree on to verify that who you're talking to is who you really think they are. I know this sounds like spy stuff, but sadly, this is kind of where we are now. So something to think about, something you might want to work on with your friends and family. All right, next up, this is from The Verge, and this is a quick note about a new Firefox service. Uh, Firefox is introducing a new paid subscription privacy monitoring service called Mozilla Monitor Plus. For $8.99 a month under its annual subscription, Mozilla says it will automatically keep a lookout for your information at over 190 sites where brokers sell information they've gathered from online sources, such as social media sites, apps, and browser trackers. And when your info is found, it will automatically try to get it removed. Mozilla Monitor product manager Tony Sonoto, or maybe Sonoto, told The Verge in an email that Mozilla partners with a company called OneRep to perform these scans and subsequent takedown requests. While requests usually take between 7 and 14 days to process, he says sometimes information can't be removed. Mozilla will keep trying, he added, but will also give Plus members instructions for attempting removal themselves. Basic Monitor members will get a free scan and a one-time removal sweep, plus continual monthly data broker scans after Mozilla says. The paid subscription builds on the free dark web monitoring of Mozilla Monitor, previously called Firefox Monitor, a service Mozilla debuted in 2018. Services like this are fairly common, but they're not all well-known to most people, and searching for them is as likely to turn up sketchy scam sites as it is legitimate service providers like, for instance, Delete Me. That makes it difficult to suss out trustworthy companies, which is really where Mozilla's reputation as a privacy-first subsidiary of the open-source nonprofit Mozilla Foundation could help. So I actually want to do a whole uh, interview on some of these uh, data deletion sites, so I'll be working on that. Uh, we'll see if I can pull that together. And also, by the way, next week I'm going to be talking to somebody from Mozilla about another great 
service they offer, but we'll get to that in a minute. All right, finally, one quick note. Uh, Privacy for Cars, who we love. We've had Andrea Omika on the show a couple times, and next week I'll be talking to somebody from Mozilla about uh, the problem with privacy in cars. But they've come out with something new and interesting. I want to just make you aware of it called opt-out code. It's sort of an extension to like global privacy control, uh, which is something you can enable in your web browser, which if you're interested, I've got an article on that on Firewall Stone Stop Dragons. And it's kind of a way for you to say to everybody in a kind of a blanket way, hey, I don't want to be tracked. If that's something you care about, if that's something that me saying I don't want you to do it means that you won't do it, please don't do it. And of course, here in the United States, there's absolutely nothing requiring companies to pay any attention to that signal whatsoever. And this opt-out code has the same problem in that it is an interesting way for you to give a universal opt-out signal in ways that the global privacy control signal doesn't cover. But for the most part, nobody is required to pay any attention to it. So anyway, let me just tell you what it is. Basically, their idea is, and if you go to uh, optoutcode.com, you can read about it. What they're suggesting is that you change your device names to include a standard three-character prefix that declares that you do not want your data sold or shared. And it's honestly kind of clever. The, the three characters are zero dollar sign S. And the translation is that the zero corresponds to do not. The dollar sign is there for sell and the S is there for share. So zero dollar sign S translates roughly into do not sell or share. And so if you if you've ever looked at your phone uh, or Wi-Fi, SSID, or a computer listed on a network, you know, it'll say like, you know, carries iPhone or carries Mac or whatever. What they're basically saying is go to the places where you set those names and you can change those names. Go to the settings for your phone, for your computer, for your router, and change the advertised name of that device to include as a prefix at the very beginning, zero dollar sign S. Why would you do that? Well, this global privacy control idea only works really in web browsers. This works kind of anywhere, or at least a lot of places that global privacy control doesn't work. So if I'm an app on your phone or an app on your computer or someone using your network, and I, I can query the name of the device, the name of your phone, the name of the computer. And if I see in that query that it has that prefix on it, if I am somebody who normally would collect and sell or share data, I can now see that this person doesn't want me to do that. Will this work? I don't know, but I think it is at least an interesting idea. So anyway, if you're interested, go to optoutcode.com for more information. So uh, I do have a tip of the week, and that is how to avoid tax scams. So let me go through that really quickly. But as usual, if you are a newsletter subscriber, the full article is already sitting in your inbox. And even if you're not, you can go to my blog at firewallstonestopdragons.com. And this week, it will be the top article. And of course, there is a link in the show notes. So first of all, and this is, I think, really the key thing, because a lot of us don't really understand this, but a lot of tax scams have to do with getting calls or text messages, you know, with this urgent need for you to pay your taxes because, or, or, or go to jail, or sometimes it's the other way around. It's like, oh, hey, you just got a big refund. Here's how to claim it. Click this link or call this number. So the main thing to understand is the IRS, the, the Internal Revenue Service here in the U.S. does not work that way. And I realize this sounds very U.S. centric, but I'm guessing this is probably true of most tax organizations around the world. And they want to make sure that their communication with you is much more official. Specifically, the IRS actually says the following things, that they will not contact you by email, text message, or social media to get your personal or financial information. They will not call to demand immediate payment using a specific method such as prepaid credit cards, gift cards, or wire transfer. The IRS does not use these methods for tax payments. They will not threaten to immediately bring in local police or other law enforcement groups to have the taxpayer arrest, arrested for not paying. They will not demand taxes be paid without giving the taxpayer the opportunity to question or appeal the amount owed. And they will not ask for credit or debit card numbers over the phone. So if that happens to you, if, if any of these things are part of a phone call or a text message or an email that you got, know that. That is not how the IRS operates, and you should immediately be suspicious. So what should you do if you're worried that it might be real? Well, contact the IRS directly. Hang up, you know, delete the email, delete the text message. Do not click on any links that were in those. There are ways to contact the IRS directly. Uh, there's a link in the article that will help you do this. On the other hand, if you are sure that this is a scam, that this is a phishing email that they're trying to get you, uh, you could forward that email to a special 
email address at the IRS to help them find and hopefully stop these sorts of scams. You can forward that email to phishing at irs.gov. That's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, phishing at irs.gov. Just forward it to them. And if it's a text message, you could take a screenshot of that text message uh, and send that in an email to that email address. And just make sure you include the, the number it came from and the time you got it, if that's not captured already in the image that you send. So the other things you can do to prevent tax scams, you should plant your flag. Uh, in other words, you should claim your IRS account if you uh, have not already. Uh, you have an account with the IRS if you're a U.S. citizen, even if you've never used it, or at least if you're uh, old enough to be making money. The IRS has an account there for you, and you should log in and claim that account. Furthermore, if you really want to kick it up a notch, and I think you probably should, I've done this, you can create what's called an IRS IP pin. This is basically like two-factor authentication for your IRS account. And what will happen once you sign up for this is they will issue you a six-digit code every year. And in order to file your tax return, either on paper or e-file, uh, you will need to include this PIN number, which also means that if you have someone else prepare your taxes for you, they will need this PIN number as well. Once you sign up for this, they'll just send you a new one every year. So I recommend that you file early. Uh, that just shortens the window uh, for bad guys to get up to any mischief. Claim your IRS account. Make sure you've logged in and given a good, strong password. Sign up for this IP pin thing so that nobody can file your taxes but you or whoever gets this pin. A couple other quick notes. Uh, most tax preparers today have a secure online web portal for you to exchange you know, your financial data, You know, upload your tax forms, things like that. I would not worry about those. Those are tend to be very secure. Uh, however, if you if you just don't want to trust those and you can get your tax preparer to go for this, a lot of them will probably insist that you use their tax portal. Uh, but there are ways, and I've documented them, on how to send files securely. In other words, how to encrypt them properly. And if you go to my website and search on send files securely, you'll find that article. It's actually one of my most popular articles. And then I'm not going to get into this here, but there's also uh, some notes about how to avoid the free file scams. And this is honestly, these are coming from Intuit with TurboTax and some of these other companies that claim to have a free file program. But by the time you get to the end, surprisingly, there's something that means that you can't file for free. You have to upgrade and pay for Deluxe or Premier or whatever. This is something that's been going on for years. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission has been trying to crack down on this. Uh, the federal government is finally going to be offering a free file program. In fact, there's a pilot program for a few states this year. So you might qualify for. So anyway, all that is in the article. I encourage you to read it if that is something that interests you. So that will do it for news and your tip of the week. Uh, next week, we've got a great show. We'll be talking to Jen, Jen Kaltreider from uh, Mozilla's Privacy Not Included team. They had that really blockbuster report on how bad modern cars are with uh, mining your data. So we're going to dig deep into that. Unfortunately, there are really no good answers, but it's something we should be aware of. And I will note that uh, this week is Valentine's Day. And I, uh, in the interview, Jen talked about another report that they are planning to put out for Valentine's Day that talks about the privacy of things like dating apps or smart sex toys, because those are a thing now. And also AI relationship chatbots, another thing that's a thing now. People are actually have AI girlfriends and boyfriends now. It's, it's a happening. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that report. Hopefully that will come out this week. So keep an eye out for that. And if it comes out, I will definitely put a link to that article in next week's uh, show notes. Mozilla just got a new CEO. Uh, so uh, I'll be anxious to see what happens with that. Let's hope, hope it means good things. And then the week after that, I've got a great discussion with two of the four founders of 404 Media. Uh, we're going to be talking about data brokers and data mining, including that crazy story about the company who actually claimed to be actually listening into our conversations in order to target people with ads. So uh, great interviews coming up. If you have not already subscribed, why don't you go ahead and do that? And that way you'll get these automatically. All right. Take care, everybody. That's going to do it for this week. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>